Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. Start clean with Clorox, because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Oh, my charcoal mask. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? <clears throat> Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. The Bowery Boys, episode 80, Pennsylvania Station. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hello there and welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And I'm Tom Myers. Today we're going to talk about a building that's rather steeped in legend, I would say. But it's still a place that millions of New Yorkers go through every year. It's one of our main traffic hubs, Penn Station. The funny thing I think, Greg, about Penn Station is that when we started researching this topic, we thought that we'd be talking just, you know, primarily about the station, that building that sits between 31st and 33rd Street over on the west side. It used to be, of course, a big, beautiful Beau Arts building that is no longer there. Today, it's some sort of a catacombs underneath Madison Square Garden, I guess. Right, sort of in the basement. So our podcast is about the original Penn Station that sits on the west side and also about the Pennsylvania Railroad and its journey into Manhattan. And the secret story behind this isn't just this terminal, but of an amazing engineering feat that actually involved for the first time getting people over the Hudson River, or should I say under the Hudson River. So we have a lot of tunnel, we have a lot of digging to do. A lot of digging, Tom, into the story of Penn Station. Since, of course, today's Penn Station isn't even a, a building that you can see today. Um, <laughs> Which so, makes it a little difficult. So people, right? you know, there, you may actually, uh, people who don't live here may actually not know really where it is. Can you set us up uh, location-wise? Yes, we are going over to the west side between 31st and 33rd Street and between 7th and 8th Avenue. Today, that area above ground is Madison Square Garden and the whole Penn Plaza office complex. A really homey place to hang out. However, it is one of the busiest places in the entire city with 600,000 passengers a day who are streaming into and out of that transit hub. It is the biggest transit hub in the city because it services not just uh, intercity train travel, which today is served by Amtrak, but also the New Jersey Transit, the Long Island Railroad, and it's also a major subway hub, you know, serving lines 1, 2, 3, the AC and E. So this is a very busy place. I always thought it was curious, by the 
way, that you got to Long Island using Penn Station and not Grand Central, which is actually more eastern than Penn Station. But we'll we'll, we'll tell exactly why. Yeah, the, the, I think we've got an answer for that. Don't we we? Do, yes, we do. I mentioned the major intercity railroad today is Amtrak. I should say major because, of course, New Jersey Transit and the LIRR takes people off to other so, cities. Nothing to sneeze at. No. But before there was Amtrak, there was the Pennsylvania Railroad. The Pennsylvania Railroad obviously created the original Penn Station, but was for a lot of its history the biggest and one of the most influential railroads in the United States. But let me back up a little bit, start, rewind our story. Back to the mid-19th century when, you know, railroads are starting to really change America. Railroads are fueling American growth. They're, of course, they're creating wealth and they're distributing wealth and expanding the population throughout the United States. So the company at the forefront of all this was the Pennsylvania Railroad. From one source I read, I quote, It could handle the greatest volume of traffic measured in tons and freights and passengers carried per mile than any other transportation system. Eventually, the Pennsylvania Railroad would have 12,000 miles of road and over 30,000 miles of track. I mean, that's a lot of choo-choo for your buck there. (laughs) A variant of the Penn Railroad started in 1823, and it started as a very rudimentary train that went from Philadelphia to Columbia, Pennsylvania. Several years later, it does receive a state charter and expands throughout the entire state of Pennsylvania in 1846. Now, in the 1860s, Penn Railroad really expanded outside of Pennsylvania, and slowly, like throughout the decades until the 1890s, they just expanded all through the United States. Now, in New York in particular, they got here in two different routes. In 1885, um, it was a New York to D.C. route that they bought, and then a couple years later in 87, it was New York to Chicago route, and that was actually a very big, very popular route, one of their biggest ones. And of course, they had competition here, competing directly with Vanderbilt's uh, New York Central Railroad. Exactly. And here's the thing that the New York Central Railroad had that the Penn Railroad didn't. And this was really like almost an Achilles heel for them because it, it really stunted their growth. And that was servicing Manhattan. Like they could not cross the Hudson River or an old parlance, I guess we called that the North River back then. The only way to get into Manhattan at this time was there was a bridge over the Harlem River. And who owned and who controlled that bridge? Vanderbilt. And the New York Central Railroad. And of course, the New York Central went into Grand Central. Grand Grand Central Terminal. Or depot at the time. This frustrates, of course, um, all the presidents of the Penn Railroad. They had a depot in Exchange Place in Jersey City. But all of these railroads, there's many railroads at this time, they all had these depots depots along New Jersey, along the Hudson River. And then what happened is passengers got out and then those train stations also owned a ferry service and those ferries would cross the Hudson. And in the case of the Penn Railroad, their station on the Manhattan side was on West Street, which was this unspectacular place to get out. (laughs) Especially if you're like a fine lady who's been on a long trip and she's about to go into Manhattan, she would step out and there would be all these vendors and muddy streets. Rotting fruit and cargo. But it seems seems like the trip over, at least, would be kind of romantic. You know, you get off the train and you step onto a ferry boat and you cross the river. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. 
Are you crazy? Because here you are. It's not oh, the only romantic, Greg. <laughs> We're talking the Hudson River in the late 19th century, one of the busiest water thoroughfares in the entire world. There's so much traffic. Your little ferry you're trying to cut across <laughs> with these big boats. On top of it, there's just so much traffic. On right. top of it, in the wintertime, it would often freeze, and then you couldn't even get over. So, And then um, once you got over there, you had to board some kind of trolley or try to hail a cab or walk along West Street. So it's all of this that's weighing heavily on the mind of the seventh president of the Penn Railroad. Now, his name is Alexander Cassatt. He was elected president of the Penn Railroad in 1899, but let me tell you a tiny bit about him because he's really fascinating. Alexander was actually born extremely wealthy in 1839, he was born in Pittsburgh to a, a, a banking family. As those who live in the trappings of wealth, he traveled through Europe. He basically could have just lived off money and just been one of those people, but he actually was quite talented, and he actually was into engineering. And he even worked at the railroad. He was a rich boy working on the railroad. Exactly. So despite his wealth, he actually, like, you know put on his overalls and like kind of worked his way up to the Penn Railroad system. By the way, Tom, if that name sounds a it little familiar. Cassatt. Now, where have we heard in the, Cassatt? In the, in the late 19th century <laughs> uh-huh. here? Well, you may have heard of his sister, Mary Cassatt. She happens to be one of the most preeminent American Impressionist painters yes. ever, who ever lived. Um, as a matter of fact, if you go to the Philadelphia Museum, Tom, if you're there mm-hmm. sometime... Along one of the hallways, they have a portrait of Alexander that Mary actually did. It's actually one of her best-known paintings, and it's hanging there at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. They were very close, and as a matter of fact, it's during one of these trips to Paris that he gets his brilliant idea, which we'll talk about in a second. Now, Alexander, as I said, he did work on the railroads, um, but through a series of promotions, he'd be the lead engineer, later he would be the vice president, would be very savvy, and would come up with a lot of revolutionary ideas for the company. And then in 1881, he actually retired from the industry and devoted a lot of time to like horses and the things that men do mm-hmm. when they a retire. A gentleman farmer. But he was actually pulled back into the company. He was brought back in in 1899 because he had the he really had the authority, the vision, and he was also a very bright guy. So he becomes president in 1899, and his one of his chief goals is to cross that darn Hudson River. He's tired of it. He wants to get across. He wants to be able to pull his trains into Manhattan. But by this time, he's not the first person to have wanted to do this. There's actually been a couple other schemes before this to try to cross the Hudson River. Right. Which the reason it's so difficult, of course, we should mention, is the fact that the Hudson River is a mile wide. It, with technologies at this time, it was challenging to be able to cross it. Right. People had all kinds of crazy schemes to get across. Most involved bridges. There were other attempts with tunnels. I'll just focus really quickly on mm-hmm. one, on one bridge, the North River Bridge of a man named Gustav Lindenthal. Now, Gustav was born in the, what's the Czech Republic today, and he was trained in Switzerland and Austrian. He came over and eventually had this plan to build a giant suspension bridge over the North River. Now, when I'm talking giant, I mean mm-hmm. giant. The His plan, which would have picked up passengers and trains, this would have been a bridge for trains, and I okay. think some trolleys too. Uh-huh. They would board on the Jersey side and come down at 35th and 7th Avenue. There's a lot of area between 7th Avenue and 
and the Hudson River, <laughs> mind you. So yes. this bridge was going to be soaring over a solid chunk of the west side. Like a quarter of Manhattan Island would be underneath <laughs> this gigantic bridge. Right. Well, he actually got a charter in 1890 from Congress. It it was a matter of national interest um, and approached different railroad companies, including the Pennsylvania Railroad, because he knew that they were so interested. The price was very high. The Pennsylvania Railroad would have had to contribute over $100 million to this project, uh, which was a big chunk of change. The biggest problem, however, was that because this was a federally chartered bridge, Well, it had to be open, really, to other companies as well. So this required, actually, a coalition of different railroads to come together to pay for the bridge. And so the New York Central, the Pennsylvania, and other railroads were going to be contributing money, none as much as the Pennsylvania Railroad. It was an odd sort of coupling of uh, competitors to pay for and finance this bridge. Ultimately, because of those conflicts of interest, the whole bridge plan collapsed. Because once, once one falls out, then they're all just going to start pulling out. Because it's like the smaller ones are like, well, if you're going to pay for it anyway, like right. you have to, then why should I give any money? And I'm Vanderbilt small. really at the end of the day was saying, okay, I've got Grand Central Station. I have really a monopoly on passenger service into Manhattan. Remind me again why I should be financing the Pennsylvania Railroad's entrance to Manhattan. It just doesn't make any sense. So in 1901, he pulled out. The whole thing just kind of stopped. Well, essentially, if Penn Rail wanted to do this, they had to forge out on their own. Now, one thing that really makes them think about tunnels over bridges, well, it's like two little... Tu- tunnels over bridges. Choosing tunnels over bridges. Trains are now starting to become electric um, because you can't have a steam-operated train under a tunnel for a mile for right. some very obvious reasons. Fire and steam and smoke and the general unpleasantness of such a ride. Alexander while visiting his sister, Mary, in Paris, they actually had an electric trains and tunnels. Um, and so he saw that was inspired by this and decided, well, we can just do that. We can do that here in Manhattan. We can do that. This, though, would be a far larger job. Let me explain. It would actually require digging tunnels of 6,600 feet worth of tunnels, essentially. He had a group of engineers. The two prime engineers were Charles Jacobs and Samuel Ray, who will come into the story uh, more prominently at the end. Here's what they have to do, Tom, and here's what they did. But it's just, it's it's really like mind-blowing. The tunnels from the Hudson to Manhattan, there would be two tunnels that would start at the Hackensack Meadows. They would drill through these cliffs. They would then go under the Hudson River, back up into Manhattan, and would complete at 33rd Street at a terminal that they would build. But that's not the only thing they were building. Those tunnels Mm -hmm. then would continue under the entire island of Manhattan. Mm -hmm. Then they would go under the East River. At that point, they would then branch off into two separate types of tunnels. One of them would connect to the Long Island Railroad, which was purchased by Penn Railroad in the year 1900. That would allow those trains to finally pull into Manhattan as well, but pull into Penn Station. The other branch would go into Queens. That's where Penn Railroad would have a train yard that they would build in Sunnyside, Queens. Not just any train yard, Tom. This would be the largest train yard in the world. On top of all of this, on top of this like unbelievable magnum opus of tunnel drilling, they the trains themselves would have to be redesigned for better efficiency through all of these new tunnels, and they would also be designed for third rail electrification 
and all of them would have to be fireproof. And on top of all of that, on top of the tunnels, literally on top of the tunnels, we'd be talking about building a grand terminal that would be sort of the showpiece, the crown jewel on top of the entire network here. Funny enough, though, after building all of this up, Jacobs, the engineer, he claimed that the whole thing could be built for about $40 million. Mm -hmm. That's less than the price of this bridge. Well, as incredulous as we are in even describing it, the stockholders of of Penn Railroad were even more stunned. The price of Penn stock dropped to like record lows. On top of all of this, oh right, you needed to get the city's permission. Now, getting this pushed through City Hall in in the year like 1900, um, good luck. This is powerful democratic machine called Tammany Hall that you have to kind of get things pushed through. You basically couldn't get anything done in New York government without greasing some palms, as they say. You had very powerful political boss who controlled who was in power and any legislation had to go through him so he'd get his supporters behind it, but he would also be getting paid off in the meantime. For instance, in 1902, Alexander Kassat decided, and Alexander was like, I will not kowtow to this Tammany Hall bribery. I will not participate. You know, his leverage was the fact that this is going to create thousands of jobs for the city. Well, the aldermen... Which is like the city council? Yes, it is. Um, they had a legitimate concern. I mean, giving this much power and much city property to one company. A lot of these leaders were understandably scared. I mean, the city didn't have a vast train system that they could put in them in its place in 1902. However, Cassatt, he was not going to bend. He was not going to fall for how business was usually done. And eventually, just after holding out for a while, they approved it. They approved the job. It got pushed through because, right, public opinion and the press turned against Tammany Hall as well because Tammany seemed like they were withholding progress and withholding jobs from the city. So they started um, So they started digging the tunnels. I'm not going to go into the minutiae of uh, engineering technique here. Well, did because, it go smoothly? Let's just say they started digging. I mean, I find this incredible. Um, like, it's, it's sometimes difficult for me to, like, put my foot in the proper pant leg in the morning. So it's hard mm-hmm. for me to understand how <laughs> groups of people can start on either side, one on the Hudson, one on the Manhattan. They start right. drilling the tunnels. And they start drilling, and they met in the middle. Which they did because it would be faster obviously than just starting on one side and drilling straight through to the other but just require this extraordinary amount of precision and measurement and they right. hired, but luckily they hired crews from all over the world who had all this experience in drilling tunnels they would call them affectionately they would call them sand hogs right um there was you know as they were drilling there was this constant risk of flooding you had the fear of the bends of course remember from the our brooklyn bridge right. uh, talking episode. about the caissons the first tube was actually finished on March 11th, 1904, and the second tube was finished six months later because they couldn't do them at the same time because the vibrations from the work mm. would disturb the other, so the one had to be staggered behind the other one. Amazingly, there was even, like, they like were having some fun. So when the first tunnel was dug, they actually lowered one of these newfangled automobiles and so and drove it through, and it, it would actually be the first car that would drive underneath the Hudson well before the um, Holland Tunnel was even built. Wow. You know, meanwhile, on the East Riverside, they were dealing with a lot of different other things because through Manhattan, there were underground streams, there was quicksand, it was just consistency was different. And they would have to, they did this thing, which actually the subway did as well, called the cut and cover method because it was weakening things. They just decided, well, we'll just dig a hole from the top 
and dig down. Which they still kind of do today, which is rip up the street, cover it with wood during the day, and at night open it up and just drill away. The the East River tunnels were finally completed. The first train that went through on the East River side was actually, they put a tube right before the two sides actually met. They put a tube through it, and they had a little toy train, and they had a little doll on it. So she was the first lady to go through <laughs> the train on the East River, the first one to be underground. Isn't that, isn't that precious? There's one more thing I forgot, Tom. Um, one of the most incredible, amazing things about the Hudson River tunnels in particular, after they built them, and they got them all complete and they were about ready to go, the engineers realized something kind of unusual was happening. What's that? The tunnels were moving. Were they moving up and down? or They were moving with the tides, moving with the ebb and flow of the tides. They were affected by the moon, Tom. The Hudson, River, the wow. Hudson tunnels were affected by the moon. So when the tide would go up, up, the tunnels would rise a little bit, and when it would go down and the river would fall a little, they too would go down further? Is that y- it? Yes. The engineers, they sat and they scratched their heads for many well, months. That would be disconcerting, yeah. Um, and so, Because what if they broke? What if they snapped at some point and you know, the river raced into the tunnels millions and, and millions, flooded? Yeah. They might have completely gone out of business. Hundreds might have been killed. Now, we had one faction of engineers who were like, well, we need to really nail them down. Like, to fasten them. To fasten them. And then there were, there were others that were like, well, you know what? I think they're supposed to move. If you nail them down, they'll be too rigid and they'll snap. So here's the crazy thing, Tom. Guess which side won? Uh, the side that chose correctly. <laughs> the side that chose correctly were those that said, let's leave them alone. So when you travel through those tunnels today, just know in the back of your mind that the tunnels... Go at high tide. Go, go at high tide. <laughs> the tunnels move. The tunnels are still moving. Now, um, of course, you know, so I've been talking about all the tunnels, which we don't see, but the public persona of all of this work was, of course, the terminal that was going on. And th- so, th- and that was quite an undertaking I know, in itself. But you almost forget about the terminal because it's such a drama to get the, the railroad into Manhattan and out of Manhattan. So once they realized that they were going to be coming into the city finally once and for all, and they knew the location of the proposed terminal, they had to buy up the parcels of land that were already there. So they chose that section between 31st and 33rd Street and between 7th Avenue and 9th Avenue. And that was the, I believe, the Tenderloin District, if I recall. Right. Notorious area, actually, between 23rd and 42nd Street and between 5th and 7th. I I sometimes say that Five points gets all the press, but uh, but the Tenderloin District was just as bad. It was, right, the area that was full of gambling parlors and whorehouses and drug dens, and it was a vibrant neighborhood. <laughs> a salacious neighborhood. There were also tenements. I mean, there were people living there. Oh, sure, and there were shops, yeah. too, and, and, you know, some factories. And, but, and on these blocks that Pennsylvania had really sort of scouted out, there were all of these things, tenements and stores and factories, and people... People who had their livelihoods and businesses, they needed those parcels of land. It kind of reminds me of the Rockefeller Center story. It it is kind of, yeah, it is exactly like that. I mean, these weren't businesses that anyone was going to miss. Penn Railroad was smart.
learned about this, they formed、uh, separate business entities, and those then hired other contractors, really, to go out and buy up these parcels of land. So people were all of a sudden flooding the market, trying to find these titles and buy from the landlords, and they were competing with each other too. Even some of the people who were trying to buy on behalf of Pennsylvania Railroad didn't realize who they were buying for because <laughs> the word could not come get out to the press that it was Pennsylvania Railroad because. Of course, then there would just be a field day because people would know that they could price gouge, and it did leak out to the press. People became suspicious because all of a sudden, all the landlords were being approached、uh, to sell their property. Well, once they had actually acquired all the land, they started the excavation work. You know, they had eight acres of land to excavate. They first had to knock down all these buildings and apartments and such, and then once that was done, they had to start the digging process, and the digging went on. For years, really, because it was such a monumental affair to get deep enough. Think how deep those tunnels were. It wasn't like Grand Central Station, where you walked in and you were almost on level with those platforms. This was so much further down. And didn't they even had to suspend Ninth Avenue in the air? I mean, basically, they were digging around Ninth Avenue, and so they had to.、Uh, but the traffic was well. There was a Ninth Avenue elevated railroad. Oh, and, right, right. And but they actually built their own mini. Railroad, which I like, they had a little working locomotive on a track that would go deep down, and the workers would fill it full of dirt and debris、right. and whatnot. And then the little locomotive would puff and chug its way up toward Ninth Avenue on a track, and then. Continue and head out to the Hudson River, where they, it would offload into some barge that would go off to God knows where and dump it.、Uh-huh. So it, they had their own little mini railroad that was helping them clear out and excavate this land. Adorable. It is. There's a cute photo. Well, once the word leaked out that they were looking to build a new station, they obviously knew that they were going to invest this much money in getting into Manhattan. They weren't going to do some hack job on the station. So Cassatt reached out to the nation's most famous architect. Architecture firm McKim Mead and White to do the design. So he actually asked them. They were just to show like their reputation at the time. At the same time that the firm was working on Penn Station, they were also redoing the east and west wings of the White House. <laughs> wow! They were they were laying out the、um, the mall in Washington D.C. So preeminent and Beaux Arts also and right. Beaux Arts right. They believed in the city beautiful. Mm-hmm. Movement, which was that architecture should help organize and give some order to the chaos, the increasing chaos of urban existence, and they really looked back at classical structures and found inspiration in great, you know, Greek temples, Roman temples. So it's no surprise then that Charles McKim, who was the lead architect here, he was proposing to Cassatt a big monumental structure that had echoes again of great Roman monuments. In fact, the main waiting room that he designed. Would look like the great Roman baths. The neighborhood watched as the construction began. Finally, in 1908, first the steel skeleton of the structure emerged from the ground, and that was the first chance for the neighbors to look and say, "Holy cow! This thing is going to be enormous." Well, this was—I mean, keep in mind Grand Central Terminal, the one we know now. Was not even thought of at this time. This was the largest like public civic building, at least in New York. And as part of this whole plan, again, this is sort of the frosting on on the cake or on the rail line here.、Uh-huh. They also needed that space between Eighth Avenue and Ninth Avenue. They had bought that space. They had excavated it because the trains would be underneath that, right? But they didn't need the, the land on top of it. 
So Cassatt, in another stroke of genius, sold that off or convinced the U.S. Postal Service to take on that lease and to build a central post office there. And, and that building is still with us. That building is still with us. And that gives us, and that comes into the story later too, but that also gives us an opportunity to imagine what this Penn Station looked like because the two really complemented each it was other. A, it's a smaller, right, it's a smaller it's version. smaller. It's less imposing, but it's still a beautiful piece of classical Beaux-Arts style work. And so just imagine that reflected across the street on the other side of Ninth Avenue. And the Penn Station structure itself was made a pink granite. um, And along the 7th Avenue side, it had a whole colonnade. Of, of the Doric columns, Doric right? columns, right, that you would pass through to get into this temple to transportation. <laughs> no, I mean, it, it really was. I mean, the, it was the, the waiting room was like 277 feet long. And I also read that it was, as parts of it uh, resembled like the Basilica of Constantine. I mean, they were reaching for the sky here and right. what they were and doing. And shooting up. I mean, the thing went up 150 feet. This was the largest indoor space in New York City and one of the largest in the world, bigger than I think uh, St. Peter's Basilica. The inside was even designed by this travertine marble this from uh, right. from Italy, which was what those ancient Roman buildings were built with. It's from like the same quarries. So it would be humbling. It would be inspiring. Other features included in a long arcade of shops, two restaurants, one for fine dining and one for more casual counter service, a men's and a women's uh, waiting area. And a men's smoking lounge, so men could just go out and puff. Um, a medical clinic, even a two-cell jail, just for use at Penn Station. I wish they still had that. <laughs> they don't? I feel, like, I feel like they do need one of those. The thing that, when you think about the, the dream-like memories, when you see these pictures of old Penn Station, the thing that grabs me the most are the pictures of the concourse, right? The, um, right. Because what's so distinctive about it is it has this like steel latticework, and it just seems to go up forever. And then that ceiling is made of glass. It was all about airy, open spaces with the light coming down, you know, because when you'd enter into the concourse behind the waiting room to actually get down into the trains, you'd be at street level there. You'd have to descend because, of course, the trains were so far down. So the platforms were below you. The upper floors were also made of glass. So the light could travel through those. McKim, Mead, and White had thought about all of these details, how to get the most light in, how to make it the most awe-inspiring experience. So the tunnels actually opened in September of 1910, um, but they ran, before they opened the terminal, they actually ran two weeks of dry runs with no passengers. Like, they, all the employees were there, but it was like, they just wanted to make sure that everything absolutely ran on time. So finally, the very first trains ran out of Penn Station in November of 1910. They claim that, that 100,000 people entered Penn Station that very day just to observe the station. Many of them took the trains, but many of them just sort of like wanted to see what all this was about. There was an initial fear that people would be unwilling to ride in these really long, dark tunnels, but, I mean, that was obviously unfounded. So Penn Station and the improvements to Penn Railroad were a huge success. The sad part, though, is that Alexander didn't get to see them. He died in December of 1906. However, um, Samuel Ray, who I talked about, was one of the engineers that worked on the tunnels. He actually became the president in 1913 and was president for a really long time and was one of the most influential and most beloved presidents of the Penn Railroad Station. As a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, they built a statue to him in the old Penn Station, and that statue you can still find today as you enter Madison Square Garden. 
of course, most listeners to this podcast will know that Penn Station is no longer there. So, uh, yeah, so, so what, something happened. So what happened? Well, briefly, let's just say, as we covered also in the Grand Central podcast, habits changed. Passenger service plummeted uh, following World War II, especially as the government started to invest in building the interstate highway system also building airports and bus depots, taxpayer dollars were spent on that kind of infrastructure that was supporting other means of transportation. And following 100 years of rail travel, people were happy to have their own cars and be able to drive where they wished. Also, people were leaving the city. Ironically, the Pennsylvania Railroad helped people leave the city because now people could live with much greater ease on Long Island or in New Jersey or in the northern suburbs and commute into New York. So there were always the the inventors of their own demise in a certain way because though and, they can't be faulted with the demise of the of the rail service uh, well no grand central was service. grand central was going through the very same thing and literally like around this time these two grand terminals were just sort of in a state of bad disrepair now as we know grand central was about to be torn down and it was saved so right. what happened here well before grand central was saved penn station went through the same thing it was dirty as well it became clogged with advertisements it just became sad as the Pennsylvania Railroad was trying to make any kind of buck. So they finally sold off their air rights to maintain the station underground, maintain the platforms, redevelop the station underground, and sell the land above it to another developer who would build a new Madison Square Garden, an entertainment complex, a sports complex, and a series of office towers on the same space where the old station stood. So this plan was hatched in 1961. Word leaked out to a group of architects, influential and concerned architects, who banded together and called themselves the Action Group for Better Architecture in New York, or A-G-B-A-N-Y, Agbany. Did we say that? Ag- <laughs> In New York. And on August 2nd, 1962, 200 architects picketed Penn Station with signs saying things like, don't demolish it, polish it, and save our heritage. Our friend, your heroine, uh, Ada Ada Louise Louise Huxtable at the New York Times, architecture critic, was also railing against the Pennsylvania Railroad, demanding that they not tear it down. And the editorial page also chimed in on this at the Times. I should add, just in the defense of Penn Railroad here, mm-hmm. that it was either like, get rid of it all. They had to save something, and the tr- the tracks are more important to them. I mean, that's their livelihood. The terminal was dear. It wasn't, this wasn't a decision that they made lightly, but they just, it was either that or go out of business. Right. Well, this was before the landmark preservation bill had actually been pushed through. I think they were just a little bit late, the landmark preservation folks, in getting the passage in the enforcement of city-designated landmark. I hear your arguments, but again, this brings us into this this new debate for the time in the 1960s about what is public space, what does a public have the right to maintain, and here is a great example of a private space that the public feels, or the public would feel later, it had the obligation to preserve. But at the time, though, this was a new debate. People were not really even that tuned into it, and I think a lot of New Yorkers didn't even really think that Penn Station could get torn down. I mean, after After all, it was just so big, it was a part of the city. And so in 1963, on October 28th, when demolition began, I think a lot of New Yorkers were stunned to see that the wrecking balls were actually hitting this landmark. I think that's why this sticks in people's memory so much, because it was so shocking to see. Like, the images were just too sad. Right. 
the, the same group of concerned architects picketed that day as the wrecking ball hit the station with signs that just said shame. By 1966, demolition was completed. The New York Times summed it up by saying any city gets what it admires, will pay for, and ultimately deserves. We will probably be judged not by the monuments we build, but by those we have destroyed. And so what it leaves us with is this new Penn Station, which is just the tunnels. There's no glamorous building on top of it. The Madison Square Garden ain't nothing pretty to look at, let's just say. (laughs) It's a basement. During the construction of this, or during the demolition, depending on how you want to look at it. Because it remained open. Yeah, they had this uh, hilarious brochure they passed to people. I'll put a link to it on our blog, where they were um, trying to sell it as like being a jazzy, (laughs) razzle-dazzle type of thing. And the, the the title of the brochure was like, Inside Penn Station, or How to Beat the System While We Raise, R-A-Z-E, the old, and Raise, R-A-I-S-E, the new. Now, right. now there, there were some improvements in the 90s, I do have to say. When New Jersey Transit and Amtrak came in the 90s, they made a lot of renovations inside. So it's a lot better now than it used to be. Now, you do have some vestiges, however, of the old Penn Station. Um, well, like you said, it's reflected in sort of an abstract way across the street with the old post office. There is that statue of Charles Ray that I mentioned earlier. If you go to the southeast corner of Madison Square Garden, you will find two of 22 eagles that once adorned the grounds of Penn Station. Now, there's only two. I mean, there's other eagles that have been they've been separated and they're all over the place, but right. there's two that they are here. The they flew the coop, but two are still here and you can still see them. And of course, we would be seriously remiss if we didn't mention that there are plans underway and have been for a number of years to redevelop Penn Station and bring back some of the former glory. I believe they want to call it Moynihan Station. After the late great senator. Um, however, uh, these plans have stalled because of cer- of our s- uh, current financial situation here in the state. And the plans involve using the post office as a new terminal, or as a waiting room, uh, redeveloping a new Pennsylvania station across the street. Uh, so stay tuned. It's an exciting time, actually, for redevelopment talks and negotiations at Penn Station. I will have pictures of the old Penn Station up uh, on the blog, BoweryBoysPodcast.com, and some of these exteriors and interiors. And we also want to recommend a very readable book on this particular topic. We always try to plug um, when there's a popular history book out there that we feel is something that you would enjoy. We try to plug it. So um, many of you might have read this already. It's called Conquering Gotham, Building Penn Station and Its Tunnels. And it's by the author Jill Jones. That's spelled? J-O-N-N-E-S. A great read. I mean, she talks about the drama of building the tunnels, a lot of the personalities. We, we don't even talk about Stanford White. but right. So thank you for our long journey down the road of Penn Station history. Join us online at BoweryBoysPodcast.com or on Facebook. So thank you very much for joining us. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. 
Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. 